Welcome to Humble Beginnings, a podcast where we uncover the unconventional, more relatable path to success. In this show, we'll share the stories before the C-suites, board memberships, and appointments, the stories of various upbringings, first jobs, career pivots, educational uncertainties, and more. This is the place to hear about their lives from the GovCon executives themselves. We hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Humble Beginnings. I'm your host, Amanda Zieta, and our guest today is Paul Smith, CEO of Rancho Government Solutions. Thank you so much for being here today, Paul. Thanks, Amanda. Pleasure to be here. Of course. So as, as you may or may not know, we'd love to start this podcast off by talking a bit about your background and your family and, and where you came from. So I understand, Paul, you grew up in a big family in Baltimore, Maryland. So what was your family like? Well, the nice thing about big families is that um, we're pretty gritty. Mom and dad uh, have to s- spread their time out amongst all of us. We have to manage through a lot of personalities. I grew up in a working class uh, neighborhood in, in Baltimore. So we learned the value of hard work. And if we wanted something, we had to go out and get it early on. So um, yeah, a lot of benefits of growing up in a big family. You would be surprised, uh, one of seven kids, that everyone has a different personality. Same mom and dad, different personality. Kind of like companies. So That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you think this big family dynamic kind of influenced you as a person? Well, um, I think in um, almost any family, really, that uh, it's running nicely. Uh, there's a value system that's there. You know, we were, uh, we were. There's a there's a line coming from uh, uh, Notre Dame uh, University that I think works well in our family. It was God, Country, and Notre Dame. It was a book written by Ted Hesbog, who was a, who was the um, president there many years ago. And uh, basically, it's a value system that kind of puts things in into the right order. Uh, God, country, Notre Dame can be, you know, faith, um, your job, and then um, and and family, and you just kind of keep those in in an order. And we work hard, we played hard, and we respected each other. Awesome, tough to do when you're sharing lots of toys and things with your siblings. and sharing bedrooms. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we heard seven kids in a row home. Uh, let's see, there was there was four bedrooms in a house, and there was nine of us. So do the math. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of sharing going on. That's incredible. That's awesome. <laughs> I understand that uh, you and your siblings also attended a Catholic school as children growing up. So did your learnings here or the environment there shape you at all? Well, um, insofar as uh, back in the 60s when we were in Catholic school, the, the nuns ruled. So there was, um, there was a lot of respect for, um, uh, for authority uh, back then. And you, uh, as you grew up into high school and so forth, you get a little bit more freedom. But there was a lot of order, which I think kind of shaped my life in a way that said, okay, you got to get first things first. You have to do your homework. You have to show up. You have to be responsible. But um, you also learned ways to have a little fun behind the nun's back. <laughs> you must. <laughs> it's actually not the first person we've had on this podcast who had a similar Uh, Baltimore Catholic school upbringing. So it's just an interesting comparison. So after Catholic school, what was high school like for you? What kind of activities or or subjects were you into? So mostly high school was about uh, uh, sports and academics. And I played uh, a number of sports. Uh, Big surprise being from Baltimore. I was both a soccer player and a lacrosse player. So they were both hotbeds for both of those sports and grew up to love those sports and loved 
uh, everything about team dynamics. I, I played sports mostly uh, through uh, the rest of my life. I actually played in a senior league all the way up until I was 43 years old playing lacrosse. So I uh, always loved team dynamics. It was a big high school. We were in a, we, we moved out to the county, moved to a, a, count, a public high school. There was more kids in my graduating class from high school than were in my freshman year of college. There were 700 of us. So we had to manage around a lot of different communities and uh, had a lot of fun. I was in school plays and part of student government and, uh, and academics were there as well, the standard curriculum in, in most high schools. Awesome. Pretty well-rounded. I would say sports and school plays. <laughs> that's awesome. I'm a frustrated thespian, but that's why I, I went into selling. I couldn't act. That's awesome. So how did uh, this impact your decision to attend Loyola College for Business Administration, or, or were there any other factors that, that drew you there? Well, uh, Loyola was actually um, a, a close school, and uh, it was affordable at the time. All seven of us put ourselves through uh, through college, through summer jobs, or uh, and I worked 10 to 15 hours a week while I was in school. So there was a proximity thing there. The, the fact that it was a Jesuit-run institution was interesting, um, but um, we, we accepted people of uh, all backgrounds at, at, at that school. Um, the business administration was actually a default. I thought I wanted to be a doctor and uh, made it through my freshman year, loved biology, hated chemistry, and hated zoology, and came to the realization that that wasn't going to work. And thank God it didn't work. I've got, I've got a lot of friends who are doctors, and I've spent a lot of time uh, with them in terms of talking about their careers. They love what they do. I just think I ended in a much better place in terms of opportunity and ability to grow in different ways. So I love technology, and I was kind of a, a second thought, not my first thought as, a, as an 18-year-old anyway. It happens, I feel like, to most of us, right? <laughs> So I understand that working in college wasn't your first foray into having a job. You worked prior to that kind of growing up. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say we had to work to eat. We had a great uh, dad was a great provider, but uh, we uh, we worked for everything else in terms of not our needs, but our wants. So, uh, pay, you know, paper routes. Uh, I worked for construction jobs throughout high school. And then uh, actually, I was the original Ted Bundy. I was uh, I was a shoe salesman at Tom McCann in my college years, so I uh, I kind of learned a little bit about retail sales, and uh, realized that at some point I wanted to get into B two B, not B two C. So uh, there's a huge difference of uh, selling to people and talking with people that are spending their company's money versus their own money. I'm sure. Yeah, it seems like an early entrance into sales as well. So that's kind of cool. It was indeed. Look, if you didn't just sell shoes, you had to upsell, uh, you know, purses to women and and belts and and uh, other accessories to men. So, yeah, there was a there was a there was a first foray into uh, what the sales world was all about. Yeah, definitely, it's definitely a different skill for sure. So, let's talk about your career after college. How did you land your very first post grad job, and what was your sub like? What did it teach you? Yeah, so I got. I mean, I was, this is a common theme throughout most of my career. Sometimes you get lucky. Um, I actually started with a company most people here will recognize by the name of Exxon, except it was a it was a subsidiary of Exxon called Exxon Office Systems. Back in the early '80s, the oil companies were thinking they needed to divest a little bit because oil wasn't going to be around forever, or people weren't going to need oil. 
So they went into this uh, division that was office products division, which basically competed uh, against IBM. There was a bunch of uh, ex-IBM office product division folks that started this company inside of Exxon. And we sold uh, electronic typewriters, facsimile machines, and uh, word processing equipment, uh, mainly to the legal community for me in Baltimore. That was my first gig. So uh, that was interesting because the IBMers, at least the, the, uh, the legacy IBMers, taught me a lot about the science of selling. And Quota taught me a lot about accountability. And there were great leaders that taught me a lot about um, uh, how to mentor and be mentored. So I learned a lot from uh, some really smart folks that in a safe environment, we, uh, we worked and uh, we sold and we made customers happy and uh, celebrated at the end of the day. Uh, but that didn't last too long. Exxon soon uh, realized the errors of their ways and went back to uh, exploring for oil and uh, have done pretty well ever since, I, I would guess. So from there, I moved on to other uh, better known technology companies, moved from Baltimore to Washington, D.C. because the federal market was a, a hot spot for technology through the 80s and 90s. Again, fortunate enough to find right after that uh, Oracle, just post IPO, Netscape after that, uh, Veritas that was soon after taken over by Symantec. And then I moved on to Red Hat where I enjoyed uh, 17 years in a variety of capacities. So it was a nice move through the industry. I found uh, smaller companies, believe it or not, all those big brands were small when I joined them and had a chance to grow with them, uh, not only in terms of revenue, but in terms of career path. And then I retired and uh, here I am two years later, just when I thought I was out, they dragged me back in. Uh, not reluctantly though, a lot of ex-Red Hatters over here at uh, Rancher uh, Government and our parent company, SUSA, which is a very well-known open source company for over 32 years now. As a matter of fact, uh, the last really pure play, close to a billion dollar uh, open source company in the world. So uh, happy to be over here at Rancher and heading things up for their government uh, sales division. Awesome. What drew you back after retirement? Uh, a couple of things, you know, so it definitely wasn't about the money. Some of it was a little bit about uh, giving back perhaps, because I, I did do a lot of consulting uh, gigs uh, in my in my two years in retirement. So I did enjoy that. I enjoyed uh, coaching up uh, uh, startup companies and uh, young and mid-career professionals in terms of where they wanted to go. Some of it was about loyalty because there's a lot of folks uh, from my old company that are over here that were they were looking for the next growth company uh, that was going to be wildly successful in new spaces, different from where we were in our in our old company, playing uh, very uh, heavily at the edge, at the tactical edge, and uh, in the cloud. So there uh, there are elements of fun. Uh, growth, which I've always loved, you know, smaller companies are going to grow into something more significant and uh, just a chance to come out and uh, make an impact again with some uh, professionals. And if I do my job well here, I'll have uh, someone in this organization succeed me at some point in time uh, so that I can uh, go back happily to that, that other life. There's nothing wrong with that other life. You just, you just have to stay, you just have to stay busy. I don't know. Sounds kind of good to me. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, I understand, and you mentioned this briefly, that you had some mentors and impactful leaders during your career. How did they influence you? So um, they practice what they preach. I mean, uh, all good leaders have, uh, they develop a vision, right? This is what good looks like. 
Uh, they deliver a system of belief. You know, folks, if we execute, we're going to be wildly successful. So that vision and belief is like up there. That's number one. I, I picked up from a lot of my great mentors uh, throughout the industry, folks like Jay Nussbaum, Ken Mellett, to name a few around the Beltway here. So there's that aspect. The other aspect is um, they're servant leaders. They were servant leaders. I tried to be a servant leader, which means I never ask anybody in the organization to do something I wouldn't do myself. So they're down in the trenches. They're working in campaigns together. They operate at a level that they share the fame. All right, let's celebrate. We have a, we have a victory that took a team to win. And they share the blame. So there's no finger pointing. If something doesn't come out according to plan, we get back into the briefing room. We figure out what we could have done differently. We being the, the most important word, not you or me. And, uh, and then we move on. And uh, we, we learn from both the successes and the failures. So I, I, I learned a lot from, uh, from those folks at those very uh, uh, great companies. Uh, at my previous company, Jim Whitehurst is probably the best example of a servant leader. leader. He wrote the open organization, which is seminal work out of Harvard Business Review, and talked about all the concepts of, of, of open source in terms of how open source companies works in the innovation model, you know, the wisdom of crowds, uh, community-backed uh, uh, innovation, and brought that and into a metaphor of how leaders lead, which is you know accountability, freedom, courage, commitment, uh, and meritocracy, and uh, open dialogue, and um, and so meritocracy being the the opposite of uh, uh, autocracy, right? But very different from democracy, because in meritocracy, good ideas actually get to be debated. Not everybody's idea gets to be debated. Gotcha. Interesting. And uh, Paul, as we were talking, I was thinking about your background a bit and a lot of the elements of your background, like growing up with lots of different personalities, being in team sports, um, being, you know, working early on and having that work ethic kind of lends itself to leadership, in my opinion, a, a little naturally. And you had mentioned we were previously talking about the tilt is that a is that a personality test or? <laughs> yes, I've been examined by many many uh, psychoanalysts over the years, but tilt um, basically operates um, on a construct of uh, a couple of different uh, measures, uh, kind of putting people into very large categories or quadrants: uh, connectors, impact, clarity, structure. So, structure you would think of somebody that's going to be a CFO and and uh, uh, connectors are folks that like to build communities and, and have uh, people uh, get along and work together as a team with shared, uh, shared vision, shared experiences, and, uh, and, and shared, uh, shared goals. So of the four quadrants, uh, I, I pretty much always kind of tilted, to use their phrase, toward the connector, which really worked well as I grew up in the open source community about 20 years ago because it's really about the power of communities and, and uh, folks from a wide variety of backgrounds uh, working together. And way before diversity and inclusion became uh, something that every HR department talked about, open source communities knew that that's actually where great ideas happened because it was about uh, ideating from people that were from uh, wildly different backgrounds. So you got a different point of view and a different approach to problem solving. And when you brought all that together, you see it not only in technology, but you see it in the, in the medical uh, fields as well. That's, uh, that's where the best ideas come from. So we learned uh, the benefits uh, 
from a practical standpoint of having a diverse workforce and diverse uh, communities of effort way before it became a part of the lingua franca. Awesome. I never actually heard about that, the tilt uh, uh, method before. So when you said that, it was really interesting. And I wanted to know if you resonated with that. But after you know discussing your background and, and things like that, it's connect being a connector. Well, I, I wish I could say that I, I did it to myself, but I've always exposed myself to um, executive coaching throughout my entire career. And as a matter of fact, here at uh, Rancher Government, uh, a few of my executives are, are re-engaged with uh, executive coaches. And what they do is they'll take you through a variety of programs like TILT uh, to do a little self-assessment, self-awareness, see where you are, have an appreciation for where other people are, so that when you do communicate, you try to communicate to them in a way that you know um, uh, that they'll receive it. Or when you receive communication from them, you'll actually give them uh, the benefit of some trust and some understanding say, oh, I understand why you worded it that way. So um, it removes a lot of potential triggers and creates a culture of trust, uh, intercompany trust, that we're all here with noble intentions. And once you get to that, then things really start to take off in really cool ways. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. That's really interesting. So I love to ask this question, um, even though it's it might be tough to answer, but when you look back at um, your upbringing, your journey, your professional career, did you ever think that you would become a CEO? <laughs> I had a young, I, I, when I was at a young age, maybe when I was 22, I had, I had a boss that said, someday this kid's going to be a CEO. Uh, I didn't believe him. If I had a, uh, a crystal ball back then looking forward, I'd say no. But um, if, if you take it, I mean, this is, this is a, a relatively small company. I'm not, you know, like Roger Crone from Lidos, who just moved on to the Boy Scouts. I was running a $15 billion organization. But uh, the constructs of what CEOs do are many of the things I just talked about. There's uh, fiduciary responsibility. Uh, for sure, you know, so now it really becomes down to profit and loss and making sure that you're making the right decisions in terms of investments uh, for the company, in terms of marketing, um, you know, talent um, and and uh, product development. So a lot of things that uh, heretofore I wasn't exposed to at that level. So now I own it, but it's not a far reach from what I was doing before. Uh, and um, now that I'm here, I can say, well, yeah, I probably should have done this a long time ago, but uh, it is kind of daunting at, at some point when you think about all the things that CEOs have to do. Uh, and at the end of the day, organizations are a reflection of the leadership. So uh, while I operate in a mode of we for everything in terms of the shared experience and, and, uh, and, 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 sh- and, and shared uh, accountability, at the end of the day, the CEO is really ultimately responsible for the success or failure of a company. So that's, uh, that's uh, heavy as the head that wears the crown, as the saying goes. So, uh, but I take that with um, a lot of uh, responsibility and, and, and uh, wake up every day thankful that uh, they entrusted me with this, uh, with this job. So, Awesome. And what has been the most rewarding uh, part of your your career or perhaps your journey as a whole thus far? Oh, that's kind of an easy one because um, I love now that I'm a senior in terms of tenure in the industry, um, (laughs) chronologically speaking, it's awesome to see people that worked with me for over the last 17 years 
especially from Red Hat, that have moved on to other companies in senior leadership positions and are building other great organizations. And uh, a lot of them will attribute it to the, the culture and the uh, successes that we had in our public sector division that I ran. Uh, that was about a $700 million organization. And a lot of them will just, a lot of them will attribute it to the great culture that we had at a corporate level, at, you know, the $3 billion company that uh, was Red Hat before we uh, were acquired by IBM. So uh, it gives me just great uh, pleasure and pride to see dozens of folks that are now wearing more fancy titles and having uh, wildly uh, uh, awesome span of control and responsibility uh, out there doing it now uh, that are a few years younger than I am. <laughs> awesome. And that kind of lends me to my final question for you. Any words of advice for um, the younger generation also working their way up through this industry. Yeah. So look, um, sometimes you've, you know, sometimes you've just got to pick the right horse to ride. So when you're making a decision of where you're going to, you know, be in your career, look at the company, obviously look at its growth potential. I've always been a fan of joining companies that are, you know, just before midsize, you know, um, uh, just before or just after a public offering that have, extraordinary room for growth. So uh, companies that have um, that growth mentality, have great product offering that's going to be uh, uh, consumed uh, because there's a great need out there. And the second most important thing in no particular order is you got to pick your boss as well too. So uh, you, have to pick a, uh, you have to pick an organization that's got leadership that's um, going to be involved in your professional growth, uh, both personal and professional. And uh, if, you, if you do those things, you'll learn a lot and you'll do well. The one thing I've been coaching some younger professionals on in this new hybrid workspace we all now live in is, uh, A, there's a, there's, a, there's a cognizance that we're not going back to the five days a week when guys like myself in the 80s were putting a shirt and tie on every day at the desk, eight o'clock, leave at five, or you're in front of a customer. But in the hybrid workspace, it's also important for, for you, the individual, to own your brand and that means you've got to be productive. There's an acronym called PIE, P-I-E. So it's about productivity, image, and exposure. So productivity is important. Your image is something we can do here, like we're doing today, Amanda, in 2D. It's there, but uh, when you're involved in a cross-functional team and how you react um, to situations, you know how you comport yourself, kind of important. And then the E in PIE exposure is, look, um, if you're just as good as the lady next to you and she's 110% of quota and you're 110% of quota, but she's spending some time exposed to the cross-functional team, the finance folks, the marketing folks, the ops folks, um, the legal folks, the leadership, um, all things being equal, uh, exposure is going to win and uh, she'll, get the, uh, she'll get the promotion and you won't. Because the tr there, there's trust there. So there's when we say hybrid, it's not like work from home all the time. It's like try to find some times that are right to be exposed to the team. So you, you, get, uh, you get that, that whole 3D experience. And there's serendipity there, too, that you know that we get from the last time we saw each other at, uh, uh, at the Pinnacle Awards event. There's conversations that you don't plan for, the ad hoc that happens. I, I call that the... Uh, 
you know, the serendipity of, uh, you know, being in a, in a, in a dynamic uh, environment versus, you know, death by 30 minute zoom calls. That's an excellent point. Th- those are the interactions that I do miss from, I guess, what our world was a couple years ago. But great words of advice. Yeah, and it, and it, and it is a personal choice. And it's not going to be uh, successful uh, as, as much as I think Disney uh, and Bob Iger tried to mandate, you must come back to the office. I think it's really the WIFM, what's in it for me as an individual. What can I possibly get out of being exposed uh, to a variety of people on the team with a little bit more um, uh, regularity than being uh, 100% of the time uh, on, on, a, on a Zoom call. Yeah, absolutely. Words of wisdom. <laughs> well, Paul, thank you so, so much for joining me today on Humble Beginnings, for sharing your story uh, and your, you know, how you landed at where you are, and for some, sharing some words of advice to the younger generation. I appreciate it. Thank you. And I look forward to seeing you again soon. Do you know an executive in GovCon with a humble beginning? We'd love to share their story. Shoot us an email telling us a bit about them, and maybe one day you'll hear them on Humble Beginnings. You can reach us at media at washingtonexec.com.